place it comfortably. So this is our last full day of session and my last Dharma talk. <clears throat> and usually my last Dharma talk is usually focused on moving back outward into the world in some kind of way. And uh, what better training to, to deal with that than what we had to do this morning. Mm -hmm. We had to adapt to a new circumstance that we haven't had to do before here. Our schedule was so regular, like clockwork, and suddenly we all had to change and we all had to be adaptable. And uh, I really um, like the statement Jan made when she was taking her bags out when she came back to me. She said, I just love this. This is what we've been training for all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we've been, been uh, firefighters, do you know, um, <clears throat> training to fight a fire and we haven't had a fire yet. We've got a fire. <laughs> Um, I, I want to uh, focus on this a little bit more because it's, it's very important in terms of our, our practicality. And I know um, many of you have heard this uh, little allegorical story about the monkeys, but I'm not sure everyone has. But it's a very good story which really illustrates um, the essence of, of Dharma practice. And the stories about in, when the British Raj were in India, um, they wanted to bring their pastime of golf into, into their life. So they built these golf courses and they played golf and they carved them out of the jungles. But the problem was that there was monkey living in the trees around the golf course. And um, as the golfers played, you know, it hit their balls and so on. The monkeys were fascinated with golf balls and they came down and they'd pick up the balls and then they'd throw them, you know, wherever they wanted to. You know. And the golfers got really, really uh, frustrated with this and they tried to get rid of the monkeys, put them somewhere else, but they kept coming back and they put up fences, but the monkeys came over the fences and they kept, still kept throwing the balls around. And so the way um, these golfers adapted to the situation, which was very, very wise, is that they changed the rules of golf. So the, the rule was is that you play the ball where the monkey drops it. Right? And um, that's the name of a book of that name. Um, it's written by, it's not written by a, a, a Buddhist practitioner, actually it's written by a, a medical doctor who's a Christian. But all of these things um, emerge out of this various traditions. But it, it's, such a, it's such a really good teaching and it's a story which has been taken up by a number of um, Buddhist teachers to kind of explain um, <clears throat> how practice is, is uh, how we practice in the world. Because so many people, I think so many people have from different Buddhist traditions have this idea of practice that it's about controlling the mind rather than transforming the mind. And all of us have had the experience of experiencing chaos in our life, um, disorder and so on. And when we come to meditate, we learn to quieten the mind and we find a still centre there. Um, 
And so there's a certain control in a sense of the mind that we develop. But then if that's what we're trying to do, if we're trying to control the mind and then hang on to that still point, then we've really, really missed the point of practice. Really. And uh, there's no fluidity in it. It's, it's not like water anymore. It's like rock. And it's rigid. And, and it doesn't change according to circumstances. It's not really one with the fact that life is impermanent and what comes along with impermanence is chaos and disorder and randomness. So as our practice teaching us to adapt to that, or is it just adapting us to retreat into a little womb, into a little cave in, in a very insular kind of way as a way of trying to protect ourselves from this impermanence and randomness and chaos which is out there. There's a certain benefit in doing that, I suppose. Um, at least it's kind of stress relieving. But it's not, it's not at the essence of practice and it will cause you um, suffering if you try and hold on to that. And all of us, through these circumstances we've created through session for the last week, in these, we've created these very favourable circumstances together and help one another to develop a peaceful state of mind. That's, that's great. Um, but as we go out into the world, we will be met with other challenges where we, we can't hold on to a samadhi state and neither should we try to hold on to it. It will fade. Um, it's not as though the benefit of session is just like a holiday and then, it, and then it fades away once you enter life. If you're actually <coughs> dissolving the ego structure, then you're dissolving this need to control and, and you, you, you're dissolving this rigidity, uh, which is at the, which is really symptomatic of an egocentric position. They go hand in hand. To go back to um, Taoist views again, Chang Su, who was one of the um, great Taoist teachers, um, was asked once when he was about to go on a journey. Do you know? Um, what you know, what he needed, like you know, horses or donkeys or carriages or whatever, and he made this statement, which is a really good statement, which Diana, my wife, really likes as an Alexander Technique teacher. Don't be stiff-necked. Don't be hard-bound. That's all the carriage that you need. Mm -hmm. Don't be stiff-necked. Don't be hard-bound. It's all the carriage you need to go on a journey. Mm -hmm. And so it's that, that fluidity, um, that adaptability, which is really at the essence of not controlling the mind, um, but transforming the mind. You know, um, to use a metaphor which is actually quite relevant today, we're actually sitting in a still room. Mm -hmm. the, the, there's no movement of air in here, but it's a windy day out there. And when we go outside, we're going to go into the chaos of the windiness, you know, 
the different randomness of the trees going backwards and forwards and blowing in our face. In a sense, that's a good metaphor for what it's like going out of session in everyday life. We're coming out of a still room into a windy day. Can you stop the wind? Mm -hmm. Would you want to stop the wind? Mm -hmm. That's what it's like. We can't stop the wind. And if we resist that, uh, then we, we set up a dualism or a, or a conflict which creates um, suffering in our life. In here we have a lot of order, and we may love the order and the simplicity of it. But say you've got children, young children, I'm not sure if anyone here does anymore, but you go back and, and they're untidy and they're messy, you know, and there's chaos and their toys are all over the place, but you want order. You know, if, if you if you hang on to that need of order rather than just adapting to the situation, not only will you create stress for yourself, but, but your family and those around you. Um, adaptability and the, the making the appropriate responses to life in a very flexible way um, works across a whole range of different experiences we can have in life. They're, they're not exhaustible, but for example, what if you thought you had certain facts about a situation and you, and you made a decision or you took a course of action depending on those facts as you thought they were? And then someone comes along to you and says, Actually, those facts aren't correct. It actually didn't happen like this is, this is what has happened. And you're presented with the facts. So if you're caught in a rigid, egocentric position, you, you'll hold on to your position. Mm -hmm. But a flexible, open person will go, oh, the facts were wrong. Oh, so we need to go down this direction rather than that one, rather than holding on. There's not an identification with being having to be right. Mm -hmm. And every simple everyday things like like um, everyday domestic things like a, a cupboard that used to open all the time and then you go to open another time and it's stuck or the lock's stuck or whatever and it won't, it won't open. Um, <clears throat> for the last 10 years it opened okay, now it doesn't open. can lead to a sense of if we're not really mindful and fluid, it's like, why should that happen? It's annoying, you know? Um, whereas if we're there, just there with it mindfully, oh, it doesn't open. So we work out what's happening with it and we fix it or whatever. Um, but there's a more appropriate response to the situation. Same with traffic lights. You're in a hurry and you want to get somewhere and the lights go red and they stay red for a long time. Well, you, can, you, can, you can fight against it inside yourself, you know, being irritated or you just surrender to those circumstances as they are and you rest for a moment mm -hmm. until the lights turn green. There's many, many um, different ways in which this plays itself out. Um, all of the old Zen teachers in the literature um, emphasise the importance of not making a cave out of meditation this little protective place, this little bubble of samadhi that you go into 
um, and withdraw from the world. And that's why they shouted at people and that's why they hit people with sticks. <laughs> Just get them out of that cave. It's a, it's, it's, it's a prison. It really is. So, one, meditation is not about controlling the mind, not about controlling feelings either. Uh, they're the wind that blows as well. It's about transforming the mind. So if we transform the mind, we see, we see into the essence of its, the, the non-self nature of self. There's nothing rigid in there to, to hold on to, or have to grasp onto, or cling to. And when that dissolves, then we can give ourselves freely to various situations. And of course, it doesn't mean um, being, being flexible in the sense that you just adapt to everyone else's needs all the time. Sometimes we become clearer through our practice when other people are being self-centred. Right? And so we have to stay steady and grounded in a position. But that's, that's one response out of many. It's still one response. And sometimes that's the appropriate response. The other thing that I wanted to um, touch on as well is um, the gift of being present to others. Um, through this week we've had the, um, the, um, the gift of able, being able to be present to our own um, experience in a, in a, um, in a, while we're in a group in a solitary kind of way or an individual way. That's why we don't talk to one another or have eye contact or socialise during sessions so that we can go within. And it's a very nourishing kind of experience to have. So all of us through this week have cultivated, you know, presence. And we've all cultivated presence to our breathing and the feelings that come and go and the thoughts that come and go. And the bird song that comes and goes, you know, the wind in the trees, all of the, the sounds of nature that are around us. Um, but again, if this is to have um, practical um, application in everyday life, then we've developed that gift of mindfulness and that we can um, give it to others. We can give it to others with our presence. Working as a, a couple therapist, I've, I've sometimes said to couples um, in the course of counselling uh, where intimacy is an issue, whether it's emotional or physical or whatever, it doesn't matter, but intimacy generally. And I've, I've said something along the lines, um, you know, that to be intimate you have to be present to another person. And, and the response I've got back from many people is a kind of surprise and they said to me, oh, that, that's really insightful. And I've gone, no, it's not. <laughs> it's common sense. <laughs> there's, nothing, there's nothing insightful about that at all. But, but what does it say about couples, do you know, that, that they would be surprised at that? Really? Uh-huh. If we're going to be... It, being present with another person is intimacy, right? 
Um, it's not separate from it. Um, and the ways in which we can, we can be in the presence of another person but not actually be present to them in that intimate sense. And one of the, the common themes, um, one of the male-female um, themes that come up constantly during couple therapy, but you, you'd be aware of it probably from your own experience and through the media too, is um, it's a male-female difference, but, but women often complain that the men in their lives, um, uh, the partner in their life, uh, when they talk to them about issues or problems, they want to fix them up. Right. And, and women jokingly refer to those men as Mr. Fixits all the time. And, um, and women often just want to talk about how they're feeling and they just want to be understood and that's it. You know? That's all that, that needs to happen. But men so frequently get hooked into this idea, OK, it's a problem, um, it's got to be fixed and I'll come up with a solution to it. And it drives women crazy. Right? And um, so that's, that's another way of not being present. Trying to fix someone is not a way of being present to them unless they ask you to fix something. Right? And that's, that's a different matter. But it, often people, it doesn't really matter whether it's male or female. The same can apply to men. Men can feel like they just want to talk about how they're feeling about something rather than being told what they should do about it. It's, it's not necessarily gender specific. But when we're in fixing up mode of another person, we're not actually really listening to them. We're not actually being present to them. We, we're in our head working out what the solution is. And as I keep trying to um, encourage men or people, women do it too, who are in the, in the fix it mode, I, I try to encourage them just to listen to their partner because it's actually easier to do. It's easier. It's, it's not that hard. And instead of racking your brains, you know, trying to come up with a solution, thinking it out and feeling responsible for it, all you've got to let go, do is let go and be present and hear and look at your partner and then reflect back in active listening kind of ways that you've understood what was said. It's really, really simple. Mm -hmm. And mindfulness is really simple. Then it's really simple. That it's coming back to that simplicity is often the most appropriate response. When we're caught up in a, a more egocentric way of being, um, it's harder. We just, we just try harder and we uh, try to fix things up all the time. And uh, we... We strain ourselves more. So Zen practice and mindfulness practice is, is a relaxed doing. It comes back to this effortless effort that we've talked about during the session. It's not this trying to change circumstances to meet me, but adapting to circumstances in a much wiser kind of way. also depends, it's also important that in relationships, whether it's friends or intimate relationships or with children, workmates, whatever, is that our presence 
is to the whole person and everything that they are and all the different facets of that person. So it's not just um, being present to other people's suffering or their problems, it's being present to their love when they express it or their joy when they express it or their playfulness to their, to their strengths, to the whole person. And uh, that's important. It, there's a lot of emphasis in Buddhism that life is suffering, um, but that's only half of it. <laughs> life is also joyful too. And if, we, if, we, if, if our attention is just focused down on suffering all the time, um, then we're, we're really missing the richness of life and we're missing the richness of the interactions that we can have with others. With um, caretakers and children around, around um, research they do around attachment and so on, they've done studies where um, mothers who are very, very anxious mothers, and this is not to be critical of them, but if they're very, very anxious and they're preoccupied and they're not mindful, um, the only time they seem to really give their children attention is when the children are distressed. They're sort of distracted doing other things. And then when the child cries, they're right there with it. Um, but they're not there when... If the, if the child's not in a, having a problem, if the child's just playing around or, you know, being silly, whatever, or calm... Um, then the child doesn't get attention because the mother's preoccupied by other things. So the child learns that it has to be distressed to get mum's attention. Mm -hmm. And so the childhood experiences mum or dad, you know, as giving them really full attention when they're giggling and laughing and being silly and happy and so on, as well as when they're distressed, then there's going to be that... that a, a presence to the to whole to the whole of what they are, and just as that applies to relating to a child, um, it's very important that we relate to the people in our life around us in a in a similar kind of way. We're we're ready ready to respond whatever comes. Again, with my recent trip to Vanuatu, that's that's what you found in, in those Vanuatan people so, so readily is that um, if you looked them in the eyes and you smiled at them, they, they so spontaneously just returned at 110%. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we need more of that in our culture. So, in summary, taking out of this not using meditation to control your mind. You are using those Taoist principles of metaphors of the water, um, being fluid, um, using meditation to transform the mind rather than controlling the mind. Not setting up stillness against chaos or disorder or randomness. And, as we just talked about, um, uh, we've developed the gift of mindfulness as a week and now our next task is to share it lovingly with those around us.